You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Tribe fans. Welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Now, since this is the week of Halloween, I had an idea to dive into the topic of baseball-related internments at Cleveland's Lakeview Cemetery. Lakeview's uh, one of the biggest cemeteries in Cleveland, one of the most notable. Um, and it's not, this isn't meant to be anything morbid. You know, again, Lakeview's just, it's a huge Cleveland tourist attraction. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend it. You can check out President Garfield's tomb, uh, as well as John D. Rockefeller's um, grave is out there as well. Those are probably two of the most notable Clevelanders that are, are buried out at Lakeview. And for me, actually, cemeteries are one of my favorite areas of local history. When I was a undergrad at Baldwin-Wallace, I, I did research into a local cemetery that was near campus. And, you know, one thing led to another and kind of led me on this trajectory to uh, where I'm at today in terms of public history, the the history that's um, not necessarily the academic write books, teach classes, but more of getting history out to people that uh, go to museums or listen to podcasts or do whatever. So um, I thought this would be a, a unique way to blend two of my interests in history. So a quick background on Cleveland's Lakeview Cemetery. I'm not necessarily an expert on that particular cemetery, but um, just some context that during the early 1830s, there was 
what was called the rural cemetery movement or garden cemetery. And as these East Coast cities grew, um, local cemeteries that were in the cities became neglected and unhygienic. And uh, this spurred a movement to create these lush garden cemeteries outside of the city limits where people could actually go visit and spend time and you know, it was encouraged to uh, to go out and spend and take guests that were from out of town and visit these cemeteries. Um, you know, there's there's also entire books written about the uh, changing view of mourning and death in the pre and post Civil War America. But again, that's a, uh, a different topic. And so you see the first rural cemetery out in in the United States. The first one is Mount Auburn in uh, Cambridge, I believe, outside of, of Boston. So if you're out there, that's, you know, they have these hills, they have all these uh, ponds and, and this and that. And actually, when I was in grad school at uh, Wright State, we uh, picked up the collection from the cemetery that's down there. It's a, a woodland, I believe. And that's where the Wright brothers are. But I remember going through the collection of materials and it mentioned that they used to have a peacock that roamed the ground. So, again, not necessarily what you think of in terms of today, you know, our our perception of cemeteries, I think, at times where you think of these scary, haunted, rundown, um, you know, graveyards. This is meant to be something that was aesthetically pleasing or uh, aesthetically pleasing. And for Cleveland, Lakeview was founded around the same time that organized baseball and professional baseball was taking a hold in the city. As the four cities entered their fifth season of organized ball, the Plain Dealer noted on July 29, 1869, quote, A movement has been on foot for some time to establish a cemetery on the lakeshore. A meeting was held at the rooms of the United States judge on the 28th instant, and the requ- requisite steps were taking toward perfecting the plans. Mr. J.H. Wade presided, and Mr. L.L. Holden was secretary, and after due deliberation and exchange of opinions, a committee was appointed to nominate nine trustees and a clerk of what is known as Lakeview Cemetery Association, and on the report of said committee, their recommendation was as followed. The sentiment of the meeting was that the growth of the city is already encroaching upon Woodland Cemetery, that it is capacity will soon be too limited for the city needs, and above all, it is not nor ever can be such a cemetery as Cleveland should have. It was considered a decent burial place, nothing more. The location of land precludes anything like landscape adornments. So again, you, you see there um, that reference that I made earlier about having these nicer cemeteries to um, you know, reflect a city that was growing in Cleveland post Civil War was on its way to, you know, becoming that sixth city, the sixth biggest city in the country. And like other big cities they wanted that reflected in all aspects of Cleveland. And the article went on to say that the proposed cemetery has not been located. The trustees have in view a number of localities from these and others that may present a large and appropriate piece of ground will be selected and purchased that shall admit of such adornments of landscapes and shall make Lakeview Cemetery another and very important addition to the beauties of Cleveland. And with the cemetery being as old as Cleveland baseball, you find the spectrum of players kind of range the the gamut of Cleveland baseball clubs. So one individual that is located in Section 10, Lot 20, is a man named Arthur Burt, 
Now, Bert was one of the last living members of the Forest City Club. Um, last Cleveland native, Deacon White, actually outlived him by a couple months. And when he died, the Plain Dealer's obituary mentioned the, the baseball history connected to him. And a real quick aside, the obituaries back in the in the early 1900s, even before that, were very informative. So if you're ever doing genealogy, I, I highly suggest trying to find obituaries. They give a lot of information. And with Bert, it, it mentioned he was a, a, a sports enthusiast, uh, was a ball player in 1869, um, active in the civic and business life of Cleveland, died at his home on Lincoln Boulevard in Cleveland Heights. Um, born in Cleveland on April 30th, 1851, and educated in the Humiston Academy, a private school. After graduation, he joined his father in the wholesale wool and seed business and becoming a partner. But Harry goes on to mention that in his youth, he was active in sports and particularly interested in baseball. And in 1869, he played center field as an amateur for the Forest City team, a forerunner of the present professional club. Uh, in recent years, he was known as one of the oldest players of the game. Now, he actually made his debut on July 17, 1868, and played through September 25, 1869. So he was one of those few players on the club that wasn't being paid. Around 1869 is when Cleveland was paying some of its players. Again, not all of them. We weren't a full professional team like the Cincinnati Red Stockings. But nevertheless, uh, Arthur Burt was a Clevelander and, and played on that first club and is a pioneer of Cleveland baseball. So if you're out in the cemetery, uh, feel free to check out his uh, gravesite. And there's several more um, or several, several additional four city players or not players, but people associated with the club in Lakeview Cemetery. They were members of the board or helped out with various other aspects. So uh, there's a, the four cities are, are represented um, in Lakeview Cemetery. Also buried in Lakeview are the former owners of the Cleveland Spiders, uh, the first being Frank DeHaas Robeson. And Robeson passed away on September 25th, 1908. During uh, that hotly contested 1908 pennant race with Cleveland and Detroit really going down to the wire and Cleveland finishing that half game behind Detroit with uh, Knapp as the player manager. And that season took a lot out of, of Knapp, but again, it's a story for a, a different day. And again, the paper weaves in and out that day's results with uh, the news that Frank had passed away. They mentioned that he had died of heart failure and that uh, mentions also that he was a pioneer figure in baseball and he expired shortly after the end of the Cleveland-Washington game, one of the few he had missed this season. Um, in that game on September 25th was tied 1-1 to going into the 5th until the floodgates opened and Washington scored five runs in the top of that inning and Cleveland ended up losing 6-1. to and in his obituary, it, it kind of runs the gamut about how successful Frank was as a businessman uh, in the streetcar line and how more than 100 cities in the United States and Canada had flourishing street railway lines. But for, for Frank, he uh, was the more gregarious of the brothers and liked to be out and about. And the paper notes that 
Um, he died uh, at 7 o'clock in his Bratinall home, which I did some digging on that, and it was this lovely mansion. Obviously, they, they had some money, and unfortunately, it no longer stands. Long gone. I think it was demolished uh, not actually long after after he passed, but um, again, I guess you can't save everything, but it would have fit in with all the other houses on Millionaire's Row. And if you are aware of the spiders' history, or if you know anything about the spiders, you probably know that they had one of the worst, actually the worst season of professional baseball where they lost over 100 games and only won 20. And I think they had like a 50-game road trip because no one wanted to play in Cleveland anymore because they couldn't draw. And the, the Cliff Notes version of that story is Frank and his brother Stanley ended up buying the St. Louis team as well. And if you have two teams and you have you know decent players on both, why not combine them and make an all-star team? And that's what they tried to do. Now, it didn't necessarily work out for St. Louis, and it, it was horrible for Cleveland. And the result was that awful, awful uh, Spiders team that ended up folding at the end of the season. Now, there didn't seem to be any harsh feelings in his obituary, in the, uh, or at least in the reporting of his death in Cleveland. Obviously, they had the naps, so baseball had returned to Cleveland, and it was still being played at, at League Park. And Frank himself was still a big fan of the naps. And it mentioned that as founder and owner of the Cleveland American Association team and part owner in the present St. Louis Cardinals, Uh, Frank was keenly interested in baseball. He knew the inside and outside of it. His financial connection never blurred his appreciation of a good play. He was an enthusiastic rooter for the Naps, and he hardly missed a game this summer at League Park. He saw Cleveland lose the Washington game Thursday. Apparently, he was in excellent health and spirits, but it was his last game. Yesterday, he was not in his accustomed place in the grandstand. A slight attack of indigestion had troubled him in the morning. On the advice of his family, he remained at home. The Naps lost again in the heartbreaking ninth, and just after the sun had set upon uh, the battlefield, Frank, in his Bradenall home, clapped a hand to his head and sank to the floor and died. The rest of his obituary goes into his work in the street rail lines. Um, it did mention that he had an office in the Schofield building, which I thought was neat because that's right down the street from our our current ballpark so that's uh you know those connections but overall his his death was surprising it said his friends did not suspect that he that the robust man would die by the bursting of a small blood vessel um again very um gregarious out there like to uh like to spend his money and um uh, was was a keen fan of baseball and to make a quick plug for a uh, saber I, I do recall in our uh i'm sorry 19th century uh presentation or 19th century saber meeting someone had a a presentation on on the family and how uh the street rails and all that stuff and and the baseball holdings kind of interacted and and the stories behind that so there's always these stories you can get into when you join saber it's not just results of games or uh, you know, things of that nature. There's so many different lines and, and different ways you can uh, explore the history of baseball. And that's my Sabre plug. 
A few years later, Frank's brother Stanley passed away. Um, at the time, Stanley was the owner of the St. Louis Ball Club. And when the brothers bought the St. Louis Ball, Ball Club in, in 1899, it was uh, Stanley that kind of was Cleveland's owner and uh, kind of oversaw that. As, so I guess take that for, for what you will. Like his brother Frank's obituary, the plain dealer covers kind of the same things in terms of his business and the success of that, as well as the success of the Spiders winning a Temple Cup, um, but also the lack of success as you know the owners of the St. Louis Club did um, made every determination to build up the the club, and it just didn't just didn't take hold while they were owners and. Former star shortstop of the Cleveland Club, Ed McKean, the paper said that he was quoted as saying, the boys always liked Stanley Robinson, Robeson. I, I believe it's Robeson. That's how my sister has the same last name, and that's how they pronounce it. So I apologize if I'm, I'm, I couldn't find the uh, pronunciation guide anywhere. Uh, but he was a clean sportsman, and money was counted as a small object. If the player could deliver the goods, he wanted a winner. There was a few more details about um, Stanley's funeral. I mentioned that it was held at Trinity Cathedral and that the president of the National League, as well as Charles Ebbets and Ben Scheib were in attendance, um, described some of the floral pieces that were sent by every National League club and some from American League clubs, uh, but the most notable was the one sent by the offices and players of the St. Louis Cardinals. And this piece consisted of a baseball diamond with bases and baselines shown with bats crossed at home plate. It was of red roses and red and white carnations, and the funeral was largely attended. Also, the President Summers of the Naps and Davis Hawley, former owner of the Cleveland National League Club, expressed their deepest regret this evening upon learning of the death of Stanley. Also, Stanley hadn't been in the, the best shape mentioned that he had heart failure was the immediate cause of his death and that he was at a hospital in Chicago for several weeks this winter for treatment um, uh, for a, another illness and left there in January, but wasn't well, went to Panama in search of health, uh, was in St. Louis for several days on his, re on his return, um, and then he kind of kept ill, arrived in Cleveland, and was going to go back to St. Louis, but again, he ended up dying. And Stanley was a lifelong bachelor, so he didn't have any kids to uh, take over the reins of the club. So the the ownership went to Frank's daughter, Helen Hathaway uh, Robeson Britton. She had been remarried a, uh, a couple times, and she is also buried in the family plot in Lakeview. And when she died, uh, the paper was was mentioning again the the baseball background that she was the first woman to own a big league club she passed away at 71 a native clevelander who became the first woman to own a big league baseball club will be buried in lakeview cemetery here tomorrow following the services at 2 p.m um, mrs bigsby president and owner of the st louis club from 1911 to 1918 died sunday in philadelphia where she had been living with her daughter um, the St. Louis National League Club was willed to Miss Bigsby to, by her uncle, uh, who lived in Cleveland before he purchased the Cardinals. Her father was Frank, who was owner of the team, 
and she was a, an ardent baseball fan. And when she um, she inherited the the club upon the, her uncle's death in 1911, she was living in Cleveland and was married to the late uh, Skylar Britton. Later, they were divorced, and she married Charles S. Bigsby. Um, she was an ardent baseball fan and an advocate for ladies' days at the ballparks long before they were adopted. And her obituary also mentions that the Cardinals, managed by Miller Huggins, were never able to reach the first divisions under her ownership. She left St. Louis after selling her interest in 1918 and lived in Boston, New York, and Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, before moving to Philadelphia. So while not necessarily connected to the Cleveland baseball team, there's that relationship with her, her father and uncle that owned the Cleveland team. And, and again, a notable internment at Lakeview that, uh, you know, is a big part of, of baseball history, uh, the first female owner. So, again, that's they're all in the, the family plot out, out in Lakeview. And representing the, the early Cleveland club, we mentioned a little bit about him, I think, in the first podcast was Charlie Summers, the gentleman that helped get the American League off the off the ground and running and first owner of the Cleveland teams that his financial issues ended up setting the, the table for him having to sell the club, which then brought in, in James Dunn, who brought in Tris Speaker, and then uh, as they say, the the rest is history. But Charlie Summers is also in, uh, buried in Lakeview Cemetery. In Summers' obituary, again, it, it goes the, into his baseball background, mentioned that he helped found the American League with his cash and helped Ban Johnson fight the monopoly of, uh, of baseball. And he actually died in his summer home in, in Putin Bay, uh, mentioned baseball lost one of its greatest friends, and although he never received the credit due for his efforts, Summers did perhaps more to boost the game to its present high level than anyone else except Ban Johnson, who founded the American League and presided over it for more than a quarter of a century. It was Ban who came up with this idea, and um, it was Charlie that helped fund all this stuff. And uh, again, Summers was 65 at the time, uh, was was ill for about three months after being stricken by a liver ailment, um, ended up, again, passing away in, in Putin Bay. The obituary goes on to say, too, that it is a coincidence that the four men responsible for the American League, Johnson, Summers, Comiskey, and Jimmy McClare, all have died within the last three years. Uh, to McClare, a once great player and popular manager, was entrusted the job of getting the desired stars to quit the National for the American with the money supplied by Summers. And McClear personally visited the winter homes of the leading National League stars. He was one of the first magnates to believe that his patrons were entitled to, oh, and this goes back to Summers, that he was one of the first magnates to believe that his patrons were entitled to better accommodations than just those afforded by wooden stands. Back in 1908 at League Park, he constructed, and obviously 1908 is not the correct year, but one of the first steel and concrete plants in the majors, which still stands as a monument to him. So that, again, ties into that last podcast where we talked about the construction of League Park and everything that kind of went into that, and that was under Charlie Summers' watch. Also in Lakeview, uh, if you're aware of any baseball player buried in Lakeview, it's got to be Ray Chapman. Uh, I was out there for the 100th um, anniversary of his fatal beaning. We left a few things at his 
gravesite, but 11 years before Ray Chapman, there was actually a, another ball player who was hit and killed by a baseball named Charles uh, Pinckney. And again, equally as a tragic a story, the plane dealer had mentioned that he, Charles had died before the eyes of his aged father who had traveled from Cleveland to watch his son play on the ball field. Uh, he was the second baseman in the member of the local Central League club. It mentioned that he was laid low by a terrific in-shoot thrown by pitcher Hagerman in the last inning of the second game with Grand Rapids in Dayton. He was taken to the hospital, and at the time, again, they weren't sure if he was going to live or die. But the next day, it mentioned that he dies as a result of the blow. Pitched ball proves fatal to the young Collinwood man. Plays professionally ever since he was 17 years old. He was from Collinwood, and he was, um, again, playing in, in the Dayton Central League Tuesday, died in the hospital, never regaining consciousness after being struck down. His father, who was his guest at the time, fainted away when hurrying to his son's side, and it is feared that the shock may prove fatal to him as he has a weak heart. His dad didn't actually die from anything resulting from that. I think it was a few years later, ended up digging into that. But he was only the, Charlie was only 21 years old and was considered to have a, they said a brilliant future ahead of him on the diamond had it not been for an accident he had playing in 1906 where he, uh, uh, I believe got hurt and it mentioned how great of a player he was at such a young age. And he kind of bounced around for a while and until 1906 when he sprained his ankle, you know, he was leading the league in fielding and batting and recognized for his, his great work. And it even says he was given a diamond stick pin by the club owners, uh, of the team he was on. The paper also mentioned that the family, we, you don't have um, you know, the instant connection like we have today in terms of real-time uh, news per se in your house. So they'd received a telegram saying he was going to pull through, but it, uh, it wasn't meant to be. And there's a, a better description in his in a Sabre story about the incident, and it mentioned that it was the second game of a doubleheader, and Grand Rapids was up 5-3. to three. Um, Hagerman had walked the first batter and retired the next, which brought Charles to the plate. And one of the papers described it as uh, he threw three balls to Pinckney and the fourth appeared to be a ball which would entitle the batter to his base. It was a swift shoot which approached the home plate like a swift shot from a rifle. It was growing very dark and before he could dodge, the ball had hit him square in the head just back of and above uh, the left ear. The report was so loud that it was heard by practically all present, and the athlete fell to the ground like one shot. So again, very similar to uh, to Ray Chapman. Now, granted, it wasn't in a professional game, but nevertheless was uh, a tragedy in itself. And I believe it was in The Plain Dealer recently, in the last 20 years, that there was a story written about him, and it turned out he didn't have a headstone, so someone stepped up and ended up buying a, a headstone for the young man. And again, there's there's so many individuals buried at Lakeview, and I'm sure there's many more baseball ties that I'm just not going to be able to cover. So I got two left just to kind of round out this uh, half-hour experience. Um, the first being a gentleman named Oliver Wealth, and uh, it's just a, an interesting story, I think, because he played in one game in 1916. They were the the Cleveland was playing Washington. And they were down 3-1 in the ninth. 
Bob Coleman got a base hit and uh, Oliver went in as a pinch runner. And the next at bat, the game was over. So he uh, never got a chance. That was it. He was done. Couldn't really find too much more. He was a, a graduate of Ohio State where he ended up earning his uh, veterinarian degree. And during World War One, was uh, served in the in the service as a, a veterinarian. But I found his draft card, and it was interesting because you know you, you list all this stuff, and one of the things listed was no two toes on his left foot. So I'm not sure if that was ever picked up anywhere else, but he was missing two toes on his left foot. Nevertheless, after his baseball career and after World War One. He went on, as obituary says, he was a Cleveland lawyer and a retired legal counsel for the Workmen's Compensation Division of the Industrial Commission of of Ohio. Died in, in the Euclid Hospital. He was 78. And uh, his wife was a uh, former or a sister of, of, US, of a U.S. senator, so he had connections there. But again, interesting story. Gotten one game. There's you know a few of those with any baseball team. You'll see a guy gets in, gets the pinch run, and and that's all she wrote. And never got a chance to bat or play the field, but um, at least had a chance to play in a game. And the last person we're gonna cover out at Lakeview Cemetery is Alva Bradley, who was president of the Indians for 19 years. And mentioned that he died suddenly yesterday noon at Delray Beach, Florida, where he had been vacationing for the last month. And like Frank, who we talked about earlier, um, for Alva, similar, like it mentioned he was in good health and you know, nothing seemed wrong. He had some minor heart conditions, which led him to found and become president of the American Foundation for High Blood Pressure, which... So it's a mouthful, which, again, eventually they, they merged with the American Heart Association. But nevertheless, he was very interested in civic engagements and, and doing what he could. And in the obituary and in the reporting, it weaves in his time with the Indians. It said, Alva Bradley, dead in Florida at 69, was a relatively small stockholder in the syndicate of homegrown millionaires, which bought the Indians in 1928. He became president, he used to say, because he knew less about baseball than any of his associates. He lived to see the day when the Indians played to 2 million fans at home in one year, when high school graduates were paid 100000 for their signatures on contracts, and when outstanding players commanded salaries of $75,000 and upwards. And the obituary goes on to talk about the, uh, the rich family history that the Bradleys had in the Northeast Ohio region and um you know he was no different it was interesting too to read some of the uh reactions it said lou boudreaux who became the all-time youngest manager in the major league when bradley appointed him to the cleveland post in 1941 at age 24 was stunned by the news of bradley's death oh no i'm awfully sorry the boston red sox pilot exclaimed he was the type of man everyone liked cleveland ohio the entire country will miss him it certainly is quite a shock Clark Griffith said Alva was a fine man and a great credit to baseball. We all enjoyed his friendship. Ed Barrow mentioned he was a very good man, a friend of mine, and I'm very sorry to hear it. He was a fine man. Again, the same things from Connie Mack. He was a very great man, and he was a real baseball man. I'm very sorry to hear about his death. Wes Farrell, who is one of those players that's on that Hall of Fame borderline, he gets nominated every once in a while in those uh, special elections, said, 
Isn't that terrible? I was crazy about him. He really treated me swell when I broke into baseball with the Indians. I'm sorry and shocked to hear it. Cleveland has lost a great fellow. And finally, Bob Feller said, I certainly am shocked. I haven't seen Mr. Bradley since last summer, but after he left the club, we often got together for baseball gab sessions. He certainly always treated me as a fair-haired boy, and I had the greatest respect for him. We were almost like father and son. So that's just a a few of the baseball connections to uh, Lakeview Cemetery. Now, uh, there's other cemeteries in Cleveland that have very notable people. Uh, Calvary has the Delahanties. So if you're familiar with that story, I think those are are fascinating. Um, it's just Lakeview's got a, uh, a more prominent spot, I think, in, in Cleveland history. So if you happen to catch yourself out at the uh, out on the east side looking at uh, Lakeview, check out those uh, those monuments to those uh, connected with Cleveland's baseball history. And that is it for this episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. Hopefully everyone has a safe and happy Halloween. You've been listening to Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.